0: Section 38 of A Compendious History of English Literature and of the English Language, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Compendious History of English Literature and of the English Language, Volume 1 by George Lily Crake, Chapter 4, Part 14 prose writers moore Eliot, tyndall cranmer latimer the fact most deserving of remark in the progress of english literature for the first half of the sixteenth century is the cultivation that now came to be bestowed upon the language in the form of prose composition a form always in the order of time subsequent to that of verse in the natural development of a national language and literature long before this date indeed chaucer in addition to what he did in his proper field had given proof of how far his genius preceded his age by several examples of composition in prose in which may be discerned the presence of something of the same high art with which he first elevated our poetry but besides that his genius grew him with greatest force to poetry and that the foreign models upon which he seems chiefly to have formed himself led him in the same direction the state of the english language at that day perhaps fitted it better for verse than for prose or rather it had not yet arrived at the point at which it could be so advantageously employed in prose as in verse at all events chaucer had no worthy successor as a writer of prose any more than as a writer of poetry till more than a century after his death meanwhile however the language though not receiving much artificial cultivation was still undergoing a good deal of what in a certain sense might be called application to literary purposes by its employment both in public proceedings and documents and also in many popular writings principally on the subject of the new opinions in religion both after and previous to the invention of printing in this more extended use and exercise by persons of some scholarship at least if not bringing much artistic feeling and skill to the task of composition it must as a mere language or system of vocables and grammatical forms have not only sustained many changes and modifications but it is probable acquired on the whole considerable enlargement of its capacities and powers and been generally carried forward towards maturity under the impulse of a vigorous principle of growth and expansion but it is not till some time after the commencement of the sixteenth century that we can properly date the rise of our classical prose literature perhaps the earliest compositions that are entitled to be included under that name are some of those of sir thomas more especially his life and reign of king henry v which rastell his brother-in-law by whom it was first printed in fifteen fifty seven from as he informs us a copy in moore's handwriting states to have been written by him when he was under sheriff of london in the year 1513. most of moore's other english writings are of a controversial character and are occupied about subjects both of very temporary importance and that called up so much of the eagerness and bitterness of the author's party zeal as considerably to disturb and mar both his naturally gentle and benignant temper and the oily eloquence of his style but this historic piece is characterized throughout by an easy narrative flow which rivals the sweetness of herodotus it is certainly the first english historic composition that can be said to aspire to be more than a mere chronicle the following is an extract from sir thomas more's dialogue concerning heresies chapter fourteen written in fifteen twenty eight some priest to bring up a pilgrimage in his parish may devise some false fellow feigning himself to come seek a saint in his church and there suddenly say that he hath gotten his sight then shall ye have the bells ring for a miracle and the fond folk of the country soon made fools then women coming thither with their candles and the person being of some lame beggar three or four pair of their old crutches with Twelve pens spent in men and women of wax thrust thorough divers places, some with arrows and some with rusty knives will make his offerings for one seven year worth twice his tithes. This is quoth I very truth that such things may be, and sometimes so be indeed, as I remember me that I have heard my father tell of a beggar that in King Henry, his days the sixth came with his wife to st albanus and there was walking about the town begging a five or six days before the king's coming thither saying that he was born blind and never saw in his life and was warned in his dream that he should come out of berwick where he said he had ever dwelled to seek st alban and that he had been at his shrine and had not been helpin and therefore he would go seek him at some other place for he had heard some say since he came that saint albanus body should be at colon and indeed such a contention hath there been but of truth as i am surely informed he lieth here at saint albanus saving some relics of him which they there show shrined but to tell you forth when the king was comin and the town full suddenly this blind man at saint albanus shrine had his sight again and a miracle solemnly rangen and te deum songen, so that nothing was talked of in all the town but this miracle. So happened it then that Duke Humphrey of Gloucester, a great wise man and very well learned, having great joy to see such a miracle, called the poor man unto him, and first showing himself joyous of God's glory, so showed in the getting of his sight and exhorting him to meekness and to none ascribing of any part the worship to himself nor to be proud of the people's praise which would call him a good and a godly man thereby at last he looked well upon his iron and asked whether he could never see nothing at all in all his life before and when as well his wife as himself affirmed fastly no that he looked advisedly upon his iron again and said i believe you very well for me thinketh that ye cannot see well yet yes sir quoth he i thank god and his holy martyr i can see now as well as any man ye can quoth the duke what colour is my gown then anon the beggar told him what colour quoth he is this man's gown he told him also and so forth without any sticking he told him the names of all the colours that could be showed him and when my lord saw that he bade him walk fader and made him be set openly in the stocks though he could have seen suddenly by miracle the difference between divers colours yet could he not by the sight so suddenly tell the names of all these colours but if he had known them before no more than the names of all the men that he should suddenly see lo therefore i say quod your friend who may be sure of such things when such pageants be played before all the town the letter which sir thomas more wrote to his wife in fifteen twenty eight after the burning of his house at chelsea affords one of the best specimens of the epistolary style of this period Mistress alice in my most hearty wise i recommend me to you and whereas i am informed by my son heron of the loss of our barns and of our neighbours also with all the corn that was therein albeit saving god's pleasure it is great pity of so much good corn lost yet sith it hath liked him to send us such a chance we must and are bounded not only to be content but also to be glad of his visitation he sent us all that we have lost and sith he hath by such a chance taken it away again his pleasure be fulfilled let us never grudge thereat but take it in good worth and heartily thank him as well for adversity as for prosperity and peradventure we have more cause to thank him for our loss than for our winning for his wisdom better seeth what is good for us than we do ourselves therefore i pray you be of good cheer and take all the household with you to church and there thank god both for that he hath given us and for that he hath taken from us and for that he hath left us which if it please him he can increase when he will and if it please him to leave us yet less at his pleasure be it i pray you to make some good in search what my poor neighbours have lost and bid them take no thought therefore for and i should not leave myself a spoon there shall no poor neighbour of mine be no loss by any chance happened in my house i pray you be with my children and your household merry in god and devise somewhat with your friends what way were best to take for provision to be made for corn for our household and for seed this year coming if ye think it good that we keep the ground still in our hands and whether ye think it good that we so shall do or not yet i think it were not best suddenly thus to leave it all up and to put away our folk of our farm till we have somewhat advised us thereon howbeit if we have more now than ye shall need and which can get them of the masters ye may then discharge us of them but i would not that any man were suddenly sent away what ne'er weather at my coming hither i perceived none other but that i should tarry still with the king's grace but now I shall i think because of this chance get leave this next week to come home and see you and then shall we further devise together upon all things what order shall be best to take and thus as heartily fare you well with all our children as ye can wish at woodstock the third day of september by the hand of your loving husband thomas more knight along with moore as one of the earliest writers of classic english prose may be mentioned his friend sir thomas eliot the author of the political treatise entitled the governor and of various other works one of which is a latin and english dictionary the foundation of most of the compilations of the same kind that were published for a century afterwards moore was executed in fifteen thirty five and eliot also died some years before the middle of the century william tyndall's admirable translations of the new testament and of some portions of the old and also numerous tracts by the same early reformer in his native tongue which he wrote with remarkable correctness as well as with great vigour and eloquence appeared between fifteen twenty six and his death in fifteen thirty six. next in the order of time among our more eminent prose writers may be placed some of the distinguished leaders of the reformation in the latter part of the reign of henry the eighth and in that of edward the sixth more especially archbishop Cranmer whose compositions in his native tongue are of considerable volume and are characterized if not by any remarkable strength of expression or weight of matter yet by a full and even flow both of words and thought on the whole cranmer was the greatest writer among the founders of the english reformation his friends and fellow-laborers ridley and latimer were also celebrated in their day for their ready popular elocution but the few tracts of ridley's that remain are less eloquent than learned and latimer's discourses are rather quaint and curious than either learned or eloquent in any lofty sense of that term latimer is stated to have been one of the first english students of the greek language but this could hardly be guessed from his sermons which except a few scraps of latin show scarcely a trace of scholarship or literature of any kind in addressing the people from the pulpit dishonest simple-minded bishop feeling no exultation either from his position or his subject expounded the most sublime doctrines of religion in the same familiar and homely language in which the humblest or most rustic of his hearers were accustomed to chaffer with one another in the market-place about the price of a yard of cloth or a pair of shoes nor indeed was he more fastidious as to matter than as to manner all the preachers of that age were accustomed to take a wide range over things in general but latimer went beyond everybody else in the miscellaneous assortment of topics he used to bring together from every region of heaven and earth of the affairs of the world that now is as well as of that which is to come without doubt his sermons must have been lively and entertaining far beyond the common run of that kind of compositions the allusions with which they abounded to public events and to life in all its colors and grades from the palace to the cottage from the prince to the peasant the anecdotes of his own experience and the other stories the old man would occasionally intersperse among his strictures and exhortations the expressiveness of his unscrupulous and often startling phraseology all this combined with the earnestness piety and real goodness and simplicity of heart that breathed from every word he uttered may well be conceived to have had no little charm for the multitudes that crowded to hear his living voice even as to us after the lapse of three centuries these sermons of latimer's are still in the highest degree interesting both for the touches they contain in illustration of the manners and social condition of our forefathers and as a picture of a very peculiar individual mind they are also of some curiosity and value as a monument of the language of the period but to what is properly to be called its literature as we have said they can hardly be considered as belonging at all the following extract from latimer's third sermon preached before king edward the sixth at westminster twenty second march fifteen forty nine was contributed by sir henry ellis to the pictorial history of england we copy the original edition says sir henry with all its spellings and provincialisms a volume of so great rarity as not to be found in any of the libraries which have been brought together at the british museum sir what form of preaching would you appoint me to preach before a king would you have me for to preach nothing as concerning a king in the king's sermon have you any commission to appoint me what i shall preach besides this i asked him divers other questions and he would make no answer to none of them all he had nothing to say then i turned me to the king and submitted myself to his grace and said i never thought myself worthy nor i never sued to be a preacher before your grace but i was called to it and would be willing if you mislike me to give place to my betters for i grant there be a great many more worthy of the room than i am and if it be your grace's pleasure so to allow them for preachers i could be content to bear their books after them but if your grace allow me for a preacher i would desire your grace to give me leave to discharge my conscience give me leave to frame my doctrine according to my audience i had been a very dolt to have preached so at the borders of your realm as i preached before your grace and i thank almighty god which hath always been remedy that my sayings were well accepted of the king for like a gracious lord he turned into another communication it is even as the scripture saith Corregis in manu domini the lord directed the king's heart certain of my friends came to me with tears in their eyes and told me they looked i should have been in the tower the same night thus have i evermore been burdened with the word of sedition i have offended god grievously transgressing his law and but for his remedy and his mercy i would not look to be saved as for sedition for aught that i know methinks i should not need christ if i might so say if i be clear in any thing i am clear in this so far as i know mine own heart there is no man further from sedition than i which i have declared in all my doings and yet it hath been ever laid to me another time when i gave over mine office i should have received a certain duty that they call a pentecostal it came to the sum of fifty and five pound i sent my commissary to gather it but he could not be suffered for it was said a sedition should rise upon it thus they burdened me ever with sedition so this gentleman cometh up now with sedition and what ye what i chanced in my last sermon to speak a merry word of the new shilling to refresh my auditory How i was like to put away my new shilling for an old groat i was here noted to speak seditiously yet i comfort myself in one thing that i am not alone and that i have a fellow for it is consolatio miserorum it is the comfort of the wretched to have company when i was in trouble it was objected and said unto me that i was singular that no man thought as i thought that i love a singularity in all that i did and that i took away contrary to the king and the whole parliament That i was travelled with them that had better wits than i that i was contrary to them all mary sir this was a sore thunderbolt i thought it an irksome thing to be alone and to have no fellow i thought it was possible it might not be true that they told me in the seventh of john the priests sent out certain of the jews to bring christ unto them violently when they came into the temple and heard him preach they were so moved with his preaching that they returned home again and said to them that sent them nun quam sic locatus est homo ut hic homo there was never man spake like this man then answered the pharisees num et vos seducti estus. what ye brain-sick fools ye haughty pecks ye dotty pools ye huds do ye believe him are ye seduced also nun quis et principibus." credit in Aum. did you see any great man or any great officer take his part do ye see any body follow him but beggarly fishers and such as have nothing to take to num quis ex do ye see any holy man any perfect man any learned man take his part turba qua ignorat leggem execrabilis est this lay people is accursed it is they that know not the law that takes his part and none though here the pharisees had nothing to choke the people with all but ignorance they did as our bishops of england who upbraided the people always with ignorance where they were the cause of it themselves they were saith st john multi exprincipus qui crediderunt in eum. many of the chief men believed in him and that was contrary to the pharisees saying Oh, then by like they belied him he was not alone so thought i there be more of mine opinion than i i thought i was not alone i have now gotten one fellow more a companion of sedition and what ye who is my fellow as say the prophet i spake but of a little pretty shilling but he speaketh to Jerusalem after another sort and was so bold to meddle with their coin thou proud thou covetous thou haughty city of Jerusalem, argentum tuum wearsum est in scoriam thy silver is turned into what into testians scoriam into dross ah seditious wretch what had he to do with the mint why should not he have left that matter to some master of policy to reprove thy silver is dross it is not fine it is counterfeit thy silver is turned thou hadst good silver what pertained that to essay Mary he espied a piece of divinity in that policy he threateneth them God's vengeance for it. He went to the root of the matter which was covetousness. he espied two points in it that either it came of covetousness which became him to reprove, or else that it tended to the hurt of the poor people, for the nothings of the silver was the occasion of dearth of all things in the realm he imputeth it to them as a great crime he may be called a master of sedition indeed was not this a seditious harlot to tell them this to their beards to their face generally it may be observed with regard to the english prose of the earlier part of the sixteenth century that it is both more simple in its construction and of a more purely native character in other respects than the style which came into fashion in the latter years of the elizabethan period when first made use of in prose composition the mother tongue was written as it was spoken even such artifices and embellishments as are always prompted by the nature of verse were here scarcely aspired after or thought of that which was addressed to and especially intended for the instruction of the people was set down as far as possible in the familiar forms and fashions of the popular speech in genuine native words and direct unencumbered sentences no painful imitation of any learned or foreign model was attempted nor any species of elaboration whatever except what was necessary for mere perspicuity in a kind of writing which was scarcely regarded as partaking of the character of literary composition at all the delicacy of a scholarly taste no doubt influenced even the english style of such writers as Moore and his more eminent contemporaries or immediate followers but whatever eloquence or dignity their compositions thus acquired was not the effect of any professed or conscious endeavour to write in english as they would have written in what were called the learned tongues the age indeed of the critical cultivation of the language for the purposes of prose composition had already commenced but at first that object was pursued in the best spirit and after the wisest methods erasmus in one of his letters mentions that his friend dean collet laboured to improve his english style by the diligent perusal and study of chaucer and the other old poets in whose works alone the popular speech was to be found turned with any taste or skill to a literary use and doubtless others of our earliest classic prose writers took lessons in their art in the same manner from these true fathers of our vernacular literature and even the first professed critics and reformers of the language that arose among us proceeded in the main in a right direction and upon sound principles in the task they undertook the appearance of a race of critical and rhetorical writers in any country is in truth always rather a symptom or indication than what it has frequently been denounced as being a cause of the corruption and decline of the national literature the writings of dionysius of halicarnassus and of quintilian for instance certainly did not hasten but probably rather contributed to retard the decay of the literature of ancient greece and rome the first eminent english writer of this class was the celebrated roger ascham the tutor of queen elizabeth whose treatise entitled toxophilus the school or partitions of shooting was published in 1545. the design of ascham in this performance was not only to recommend to his countrymen the use of their old national weapon the bow but to set before them an example and model of a pure and correct english prose style in his dedication of the work to all the gentlemen and yeomen of england he recommends to him that he would write well in any tongue the counsel of aristotle to speak as the common people do to think as wise men do from this we may perceive that Ascham had a true feeling of the regard due to the great fountain-head and oracle of the national language the vocabulary of the common people he goes on to reprobate the practice of many english writers who by introducing into their compositions in violation of the aristotelian precept many words of foreign origin latin french and italian made all things dark and hard once he says i communed with a man which reasoned the english tongue to be enriched and increased thereby saying who will not praise that feast where a man shall drink at a dinner both wine ale and beer truly quoth i they be all good every one taken by himself alone but if you put malmsey in sack red wine and white ale and beer and all in one pot few shall make a drink neither easy to be known nor yet wholesome for the body the english language however it may be observed had even already become too thoroughly and essentially a mixed tongue for this doctrine of purism to be admitted to the letter nor indeed to take up ascham's illustration is it universally true even in regard to liquids that a salutary and palatable beverage can never be made by the interfusion of two or more different kinds. Our tongue is now, and was, many centuries ago, not indeed, in its grammatical structure, but in its vocabulary, as substantially and to as great an extent Neo-Latin as Gothic. It would be as completely torn in pieces and left the mere tattered rag of a language, useless for all the purposes of speaking as well as of writing, by having the foreign as by having the native element taken out of it aschium in his own writings uses many words of french and latin origin the latter mostly derived through the medium of the french nay the common people themselves of necessity did in his day as they do still use many such foreign words or words not of english origin and could scarcely have held communication with one another on the most ordinary occasions without so doing it is another question whether it might not have been more fortunate if the original form of the national speech have remained in a state of celibacy and virgin purity by the course of events the gothic part of the language has in point of fact been married to the latin part of it and what god or nature has thus joined together it is now beyond the competency of man to put asunder the language while it subsists must continue to be the product of that union and nothing else as for asham's own style both in his *Toxophilus* and in his schoolmaster published in fifteen seventy one three years after the author's death it is not only clear and correct but idiomatic and muscular that it is not rich or picturesque is the consequence of the character of the writer's mind which was rather rhetorical than poetical the publication of ascham's toxophilus was soon followed by an elaborate treatise expressly dedicated to the subject of english composition the art of rhetoric for the use of all such as are studious of eloquence set forth in english by thomas wilson wilson whose work appeared in fifteen fifty three takes pains to impress the same principles that ascham had laid down before him with regard to purity of style and the general rule of writing well but the very solicitude thus shown by the ablest and most distinguished of those who now assumed the guardianship of the vernacular tongue to protect it from having its native character overlaid and debased by an intermixture of terms borrowed from other languages may be taken as evidence that such debasement was actually at this time going on that our ancient english was beginning to be oppressed and half suffocated by additions from foreign sources brought in upon it faster than it could absorb and assimilate them wilson indeed proceeds to complain that this was the case while some powdered their talk with oversea language others whom he designates as the unlearned or foolish fantastical that smell but of learning were wont he says so to latin their tongues that simple persons could not but wonder at their talk and think they surely spake by some revelation from heaven it may be suspected however that this affectation of unnecessary terms formed from the ancient languages was not confined to mere pretenders to learning another well-known critical writer of this period webster putnam in his art of english poesy published in fifteen eighty two but believed to have been written a good many years earlier in like manner advises the avoidance in writing of such words and modes of expression as are used in the marches and frontiers or in port towns where strangers haunt for traffic's sake or yet in universities where scholars use much peevish affectation of words out of the primitive languages and he warns his readers that in some books were already to be found many inkhorn terms so ill affected brought in by men of learning as preachers and schoolmasters and many strange terms of other languages by secretaries and merchants and travellers and many dark words and not usual nor well-sounding though they be daily spoken at court on the whole however putnam considers the best standard both for speaking and writing to be the usual speech of the court and that of london and the shires lying about london within sixty miles and not much above this judgment is probably correct although the writer was a gentleman pensioner and perhaps also a cockney by birth end of section 38.